Well, um, you know, as Chris just shared, you know, stepping into the flood zones and, and again, all of us have someone that we know down there. Uh, I just want to say we couldn't be more proud as a church to actually have that many people rounded up to go give up their Saturday to go serve people. And it blessed people beyond what we could experience with them. Because what you've also got to remember is a lot of people are in shock. They're just in shock. They're not even sure what they want to keep, what they want to throw away. They're not even sure what to do. Um, and so a lot of them were actually kind of immobilized because they're just in shock um, of, of what happened. Most people never thought they would ever have their homes flood. Um, and so we just got to go down and help them. And, you know, I just want to encourage us as a people that whenever you go to serve someone, don't serve um, uh, with, with, the, with the intention of getting thanked. Serve just because it's right to do so. Um, serve because God says he'll take care of us and bless us in the midst of it, even if no one says thank you. A lot of people did, but a lot of people were just in shock. We went into one house yesterday, or uh, yeah, and um, we were walking to this home, and we got done with the house we're at. We're going to go help this lady. And as soon as we walked in, within five minutes, she just started telling everybody just to leave, just to leave. She's like, just, just leave. Just, I, I, I can't handle it anymore. And so we just gracefully walked out, but we had to realize that you're walking into a funeral to someone's home. And a lot of people, depending on how much water you got, literally everything's trashed. I mean, you can't keep any clothes because of the mold. You can't keep anything. Furniture, they literally have nothing. And a lot of people we were helping were, were elderly people that really couldn't help themselves. And so I just want you to know, man, we get a chance to respond as a church like it is right to do so. And we get to bless people and pray for people. And I probably think that every team that went out that prayed over the people uh, that we were serving, they were moved by God. They just, everyone we prayed over, just it's tears or it's just they can't thank you enough. And some people went to church, some didn't. But I uh, just want to say, way to go for responding to the need. Um, well, we just sang about him, but I just want to say again, Jesus is amazing. He's, he's got an amazing name. And um, we decided to jump into a series called Passion and Purpose. And really that series is about us understanding what is Jesus really passionate about and what really drives him, like what is his mission and what are things that, that, that we can get in line with with the purposes of God. And so this whole series is let's figure out what is Jesus passionate about and how can we come in alignment with his purposes, all right? So last Sunday we talked about worship, talked about worship and how really worship is not this passive thing. It's an active thing and really calling you to take a step forward towards God in worship. Um, and, and, and that as you look in the Old Testament, every Hebrew word for praise has some sort of activity associated with it. Raising your hands, shouting out loud, um, clapping your hands, uh, moving around, standing. I'm just Everything is, is active. So I just want to encourage you, if your worship life or when you were here on a Sunday morning and you rolled out of bed and you're just here, it's kind of like, is this a concert? No, it's not a concert. You can go to concerts. You actually have to pay money for those. This is free, right? And you get to show up, and you get to say, I get to worship God. So it is not in vain. I just want to encourage you, wherever you are on the journey, if this is your first time in Antioch, you've been here before, step into God in the place of worship. And I guarantee you, when you do, He meets you in that place. So we talked about how Jesus is so passionate about worship. Today, we're going to switch gears here a little bit. I want to share a story. My, um, when, when I was growing up, we, we moved around quite a bit and finally landed in Austin, Texas. And um, my, my, my family, as we um, were, were there, I had, you know, I, I was in eighth grade, 
and um, going through all the things that eighth graders go through. Right? If you're a boy, that means you're going through puberty. That means your voice is cracking. Uh, and you're always like, <clears throat> sorry, you know, you just feel awkward. That means that you were like an All-American athlete in fifth grade, but by eighth grade, your body had grown, and now you were like discombobulated and couldn't move around and uncoordinated and weren't any good anymore, you know? And then you started liking girls but didn't really know how to talk to girls, and so you just felt more awkward, you know? And so this was me. This, this was Tyler Hardy in eighth grade, a very awkward person. And so they're on top of that, a very friendless person. So I remember I came home one day after school, and I just, I just wasn't able to connect with people. And I came home, and I said, and I just started crying. And I wasn't a big crier, but I started crying and came home. My mom's like, what's going on? And I said, Mom, I don't have any friends. I feel so alone every day. I just can't wait to get home and just kind of go to my room. And, you know, my mom could have sat me down and said, okay, well, let's, let's talk about it. She could, have, she could have said, hey, let me give you some advice. She could have called up some friends and said, hey, we need to help Tyler out. He needs to make some friends. She didn't do any of that. You know what my mom did? And this has stuck with me for years. She said, let's get down on our knees right here in the living room. And we're going to pray that God's going to give you friends. And so we got down on our knees. My mom right there. And she just started praying with me and declaring, God, give my son Tyler two friends now. Give him two friends. Not next year, but now. That you give him two friends. And, you know, I remember that because, you know, parents are supposed to give advice. But actually what's more powerful for a parent is actually to war with your son or daughter. Not just to war on their behalf, but to say, you're on the front line, I'm going to join the fight with you. You do that, all the future parents in the room and those that are parents, your sons and daughters will show you loyalty and trust and friendship and say, I'm in, Mom. I'm in, Dad. My mom did that, and it has always stuck with me that my mom is a woman of prayer, absolutely. But when she pulled me in, and just in my time of need, and just, you know, not having friends is not the biggest deal in the world. But when you're in eighth grade and already awkward, it's a big deal, right? And so God answered that prayer and brought me friends. But, you know, if we're honest, um, a lot of us view prayer just like worship. Like, we know that we should worship. We're given opportunities to worship. We can listen to music, play music, do that. Worship is kind of out there, but if we're all honest, um, prayer in the same way, we know that we should pray. It's a good thing to do as a Christian, and if anyone's ever asked in the public realm, especially in, in the conservative South, like, hey, absolutely, I pray all the time. You know, if, if Americans are surveyed, all the, yeah, I pray, sure. Pray to what? Pray to who? Pray how often? I pray once a year, Christmas dinner. You know, I don't, <laughs> like, it's, it's, like, it's still like a good thing to like pray. But I think the problem for a lot of American Christians and just people even maybe here in our own church is this. It's not that we're against prayer, but it's that we have a wrong mindset with prayer. And that mindset is this. Um, we don't pray a whole lot because we don't think that when we do pray, it actually matters. And beyond that, not that it only doesn't matter, but that if, even if we did pray, it just isn't going to change anything anyways. We associate prayer with wishful thinking. The problem is, is that prayer, you're actually praying to the living God. Wishful thinking is standing out by the pond just throwing stones or pulling petals off a flower. She loves me, she loves me not. That ain't prayer. So let's figure out what Jesus says about prayer. You guys ready? You ready to get prayed up? Here we go. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Open your Bibles up. If you don't got it, we'll get it on the screen for you. We're going to help you out. So Jesus is here in the midst of his ministry. He's already gathered his 12 disciples together. 
And he is teaching them and mentoring them how to do life. All right, so this is what he says in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now we're going to pause there before we go on. What's important about this passage? First of all, I need you to know this. Jesus is a doer first, a teacher second. That's why the best professors at A&M have actually been in the industry they're teaching you about. The worst ones have never done it. They just studied it. No offense, but it's true. Everyone knows that. If you actually have experience with something, it gives you more authority, more weight, more understanding to actually then disciple and teach others how to do that very thing. So Jesus here is modeling it. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, which means Jesus has already had a lifestyle, a cultivated attitude and mindset towards prayer is an essential part of his life. And so then the disciples come in and say, hey, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, I just want to say, Jesus is a leader to these guys. But, you know, all of us in this room, you're going to have opportunity to lead people. But the leaders that we want to follow are the leaders that actually lead by doing the stuff before they tell us how to do it. We just had 275 people show up at 6.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning, which in this town is a miracle. (laughs) That doesn't happen anywhere, right? But guess what? I could not get on the phone and call Chris and say, Chris, we need at least 200 people down here on Saturday. If I wasn't down there on Thursday with 18 other guys sweating it out, cutting sheetrock, figuring out how to actually do this demo, how do we approach the situation? How do you approach people? It's a sensitive thing, but you're trying to help. We're not, we're not trying to goof off. We're trying to be serious, but also be joyful. This is how we need to act. We had to figure all that sort of stuff out in that day, and we were problem solving. I could not go and ask you as a church to jump into something that I'm not willing to do. But a lot of leaders do that, don't they? But those leaders lead by position, not by a place of authority out of their experience. Jesus, everything he's asking us to do in the Gospels, when you read, he's already done it. He's already doing it. So there's a weight with him. So the disciples come with a great attitude, which is to be humble and teachable. Write down, humble and teachable if you're taking notes. That should just be a life theme you carry with you and you strive to own that in your life. I want to be a humble, teachable person in every realm. I always tell people, look, if you're not willing to learn from a seven or eight year old, you still got pride. You're like, well, what can I learn from seven or eight year old? You can learn a lot. And honestly, in the Christian faith, I'm learning a lot from my son, Ethan, who's eight years old. He will share with me things in the way that God's speaking to him and seeing that. I'm like, I've never seen that passage like that. That is incredible. We've got to be willing to humble ourselves and learn. You know, I, I, I often will coach sports teams. My sons are playing different things, and they were playing uh, uh, baseball last fall. And so I'm coaching Ethan and Graham's team, you know, with the T-ball and the junior minor team. And, you know, particularly with the junior minors, they're getting into machine pitch. So it's T-ball to machine pitch. Now, you know, um, as a coach, there's two types of kids, right? One type is a delight. The other type is really frustrating, okay? The, the, the delightful uh, young athlete is like, hey, coach, can you show me how to hit that ball? Absolutely, buddy. Kind of square your shoulders up, get your feet there, elbow back, can just kind of lean into it. And, and they're like, okay, and they try, and they try again. You love that kid. I'll coach you all day. The other kid, hey, buddy, all right, get ready to hit. He's like, oh, I got it. No, let me help you. I, I got it, coach. 
that kid. That kid frustrates me. Why? Because he's not humble and teachable. He thinks he's just got it, and then I just sit back and just let him swing and strike out. Right? So for us as a people, you cannot approach anything in life thinking, oh, I have arrived. Tyler, you don't understand. I've done a prayer and fast before. I got it. Tyler, I've been married for two years. I can write an article on marriage. Right? Hey, Tyler, I know how to parent. I have a two-year-old. Right? Well, then they're going to turn to teenagers. Then they're going to get older, and they're going to have their own kids. And you've got to figure out how to be a parent, but you're a grandparent, and you get work all through. That's a, that's a journey, right? Here's my point. We should never stop learning. We should never say, oh, I figured it out. You're a senior, great. You're still younger than a lot of people and inexperienced. But you can give away that knowledge and understanding to a freshman or sophomore and help them out, right? We've always got someone to teach, and we've always got someone to learn from. So the disciples come and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Well, Jesus responds. He says in verse 2 through 4, and he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. So here we go. Jesus gives them a simple model of prayer. So let's, let's kind of break this down for a moment. First, he says, start here. Father, hallowed be your name. Father. You see, Father conveys authority. And remember, prayer is not that you're praying to the wind. Hello, anyone out there? You're praying to Father God, right? The Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. You are praying to God the Father. Father. And what you're doing is you're recognizing who He is. You're recognizing that this perfect loving Father, you can draw near to Him. There is warmth. There is love. There is comfort. And there's a place He's saying, come, eat at the table. Come talk with me. I'm right here. Father, coming, just like a child coming to his daddy in a time of need or something. Daddy, daddy, we come with this attitude of, Father, I come before you. Hallowed be your name. Does it tick you off when people misuse God's name? It should. It should. It should bother us if you're a follower of Jesus when people use his name as a curse word. That bothers me, and I have had to restrain myself, thankfully because of the Holy Spirit, from hurting people when they misuse his name. Because I'm just like, ugh. Because part of me is like, wow, I can't believe you just said that about my God. Number two, I'm like, you don't understand what you're doing to yourself. Because it's going to be worse for you later. And I don't want that for you. Right? It should bother us when someone misuses our Lord's name. And Hollywood is driving me crazy. Just cut it out of your script. I'll actually watch your movie, maybe. Right? It should bother us as a people when someone says the name of Jesus, which one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, the name lifted above every name. We just sang about it. Man, Father, hallowed be your name. There's this reverence, this all this respect for God. You are God. He says, your kingdom come. Now in Matthew 6, Jesus also gives a teaching on um, this, this prayer as well. The, the, it's recorded there as well. And it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's just an extension of that idea of your kingdom 
come. So what is that really? That's that God's rule and reign will continually move forward and continually be embedded in people's hearts. Someone years ago gave me, gave me the short definition of the kingdom. Like, what is the kingdom of God? You hear that, you read that. They say the kingdom is wherever the king is. Wherever the king is. Remember, every kingdom, every realm has a ruler. The ruler in the kingdom of God is Jesus. Jesus. We want to say, let your kingdom come. When we say that on earth as in heaven, what we're saying is that, see, in heaven, there are no tears. There is no sickness. In heaven, there's no pain. There's no, there's no shame. There's none of that stuff. Not, but, but we have that here on earth. So when we step in an environment, we're stepping, we're bringing that kind of atmosphere, that kind of attitude, that truth into a situation so that people can experience the goodness of God. Give us each day our daily bread. This phrase always reminds me of, you know, it's, it, it, there is something in the sense that we want to feed our bellies and give us our daily bread. There is something in this which is, God, you're my daily provider. You're my provision. And I was thinking about in the Old Testament, the Israelites. Remember the story? They, they were uh, slaves in Egypt. Then God spoke to Moses, said, hey, go set my people free. Get them out of there. Moses went to Pharaoh ten times, ten plagues later. They finally released them begrudgingly. Then the Israelites escape. They go through the Red Sea. Next thing you know, the Egyptian army follows them. The waves crash down, kills their army. Israelites are free. Now they estimate one and a half to maybe two and a half million people are part of this Israelite crew that now is homeless but on their way to the promised land. Moses is leading them, and so for 40 years, they actually are going in circles in the wilderness, never getting their promised land, never getting to officially settle. But in the midst of all of that, there came a point where the people were hungry. Any food they took with them, any livestock they took with them, that must have ran out. And so at some point, it says in Exodus 16, the people started, started complaining to God, and all of a sudden, God answered them and said, hey, I'm going to feed you, I'm going to take care of you. And here's what he did. He had this stuff fall out of the sky, and when it came out the first day, they didn't know what it was. And so actually, the Hebrew word for manna is what? <laughs> Look it up. I mean, that's what it is. So the people were like, what is it? What is it? Do you know? What is it? What is it? It's manna. You know, it's, we don't know what it is, but it's good. It's tasty. It's yummy. It's not raindrops. It's food. But what's interesting, though, is that God could have said, hey, guys, I'm going to drop down for you tons of food. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to drop it in. You, get it, you can store it up. Then do that. He said, this stuff that's coming down, Moses and gang, guess what? You can eat it today. You're going to try to get that early 5 a.m. snack tomorrow, it's going to be rotted. This manna was not good beyond the day. They could collect as much as they wanted to eat that day. It would fill their bellies, take care of them. But by tomorrow morning, it was rotted through, except for the Sabbath. See, God said, you can go out every day and work and collect the manna and feed yourselves. But on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, you are not allowed to work. But the manna that comes on the sixth day, you can actually keep it, and it will stay good into the next day. Isn't that incredible? God literally said, I will provide for you in your working and in your resting. As Americans, we need to hear that. We don't need to hear it only when I provide for me. It's God's providing for me. Oh, and by the way, when I'm not working and God's instructing me not to work right now because this is Sabbath, the day to take off for him, he's still going to provide for me. God wanted to teach them, and I guess he didn't think 21 days makes a habit. He thought 40 years would make a habit. Every day you will not survive unless I drop down manna from heaven and two million of you will die of starvation if I don't show up. What did they have in us? 
of the grocery store shut down. And now we're like, wow, God, where's the manna? You don't think you're going to bed some nights thinking, man, I know he's done it for like four years already, but what if today he just decides to turn that off? I mean, we're going to go hungry. You know, my kids can't eat. Think about the attitude, the mindset. So here's Jesus teaching his disciples. It's not just about feeding your belly because, you know, Jesus said later on he was sharing with his disciples, and they said, Jesus, give us this bread that you're talking about. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Me. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not just about God going to have a steak, potatoes, and a side of fries. It is, God, I need you ultimately to be my sustenance today because I can't make it in life without you. That's the point. Every day, Lord, I can't make it today without you. Yes, you're going to provide for my needs and physical needs in different ways, but you're also going to provide for my spiritual needs. Forgive us our sins. You know, the thing about this is that I wish forgiveness would just be like once, like, hey, seven years ago, ask for, and I'm good. But, you know, it's like a lifestyle. Um, it's called, like, continual repentance, right? You know you're a mature Christian when you repent a lot and repent often. That may seem kind of weird. Well, if you're a mature Christian, you should be perfect. No, when you're a mature Christian, that actually makes you aware of your imperfections. Most people have been walking with Jesus for a long time. They're up in their 60s, 70s, 80s. They'll say, hey, I know I need Jesus more and more every day I get older. Not need him less and less. The earthly mindset is you need God less as you get older because you figured out life. But the kingdom mindset is I actually need him more every day I get older. Forgive us our sins. So it's not only God forgives sins, but what does he say? There's, there's a bit of a, a, a tethering here. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Uh-oh. God, please forgive me. Hey, what about uh, your wife? Have you forgiven her? What, what about your roommate? Uh, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you and me, God. Come on. No, no, you need to forgive your No, I don't want to. No, they don't deserve that, but can you? Oh, wait, got me. I don't deserve it either. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> oh, well, gosh, right? I mean, but that's what he's saying. We're going to, God, forgive me, but, but, but the gotcha statement is I actually got to forgive everybody else too. I'm willing to, to bet that maybe some of you have been wanting some breakthrough in your life, but honestly it hasn't come because of this. Because you've been unwilling to forgive someone else. Some other family, some person. That bitterness is a pretty good blockade to breakthrough. Like bitterness blocks your breakthrough. So you can hold on to it as long as you want. Complain and gripe about how God's not answering this, that, and the other. And he's told you actually if you'll just forgive people, the breakthrough is going to come. I've seen this time and time and time and time again. I mean, it happens all the time. If you just go before God and go before people, and he's going to highlight to you, then it's your willingness to say, will you forgive me? I'm sorry, or I need to forgive you. You see, it's not just a vertical. It's a horizontal vertical deal that we're living here. You can't just pretend we ain't God are good and everybody else hates my guts. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. <laughs> because we don't have to rub shoulders with God in the natural all the time. But that roommate that quits doing the dishes, you have to rub shoulders with him a lot. You're going to get pretty angry and pretty frustrated. And the roommate that takes your food that you just bought at the store didn't ask, they're going to anger you too, right? That kid that did something to the house, you're like, I just fixed that, you just broke it again. They're going to, and now, oh, i got to forgive you, right? This is the lifestyle God's wanting to cultivate in us. And lastly, he says, lead us not into temptation. Again, in Matthew 6, he says, but deliver us from evil. This whole concept of, of we, don't want to, we don't want to be stepping into temptation traps, right? And honestly, guys, they're all around us every day. 
I'm so thankful College Station has outlawed billboards. I wish Brian would do the same. Because when you're a parent, you're driving on the road, you, like, can't. Sometimes in some of these cities you go into, you're like, I can't my kids look out at signs. There's trash sometimes. I don't need that. But it's like there's temptations everywhere that we, that we are, right? But if we say, God, blind me to those or remove those from me, he does. And let me just say, the more and more you choose life over death, the less and less death has power over you. Right? So, like, you stare at it like, yeah, that's tempting. No. That's tempting. No. North, south, east, and west, everything's tempting. I'm good, though. Forget about it. I don't need it. It's like, oh, how are we going to get to this guy? We can't. He keeps, he keeps ignoring our temptations. Be that person. Oh, I love ignoring temptations. Bring it on. I'll ignore you all day long. I'll laugh at you. Right? That frustrates the enemy. He's like, oh, just but I thought we got him. Right? But Jesus has given you a spirit that is greater than he who is in the world, which says, I can look at him in the face and say, no. Right? Be a people who don't just say, please, God, remove all the temptations. Is it, oh, it's still there. Okay. I'm in trouble. No, he's saying you can walk down that dark alley and say, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to choose that garbage. I'm not going to click on that or do that or drink that or say that. You don't have to do it. Remember, you're not like out of control robot. You're you're like, you're a human. God's given you a mind, will, emotions, decision-making power, the spirit of God who can overcome anything. So we've got to be a people who don't just say, well, I tried to pray it away, but then I stepped into it again. Whose fault was that? Not God's. It's yours. You stepped, right? So we've got to be people that not only contend for that. No, I don't, want, I don't want to wake up every morning with my house surrounded by temptations. That's what I'm saying. So we do ask God for the removal, for the deliverance of evil. But we also got to take our ownership in the peace, which is be a people that step into life without being tempted by everything coming our way. Now, Jesus continues on because he just kind of unpacked for his disciples Hey, guys, here's kind of what you need to pray. But I would argue that the biggest hurdle with us for prayer as a people is not about what to pray. It's not about the right words or ideas. It's actually the mindset in prayer, the mindset that we're lacking. So Jesus is going to unpack that right here in Luke chapter 11, verse 5 through 10. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, there's a few things on the outset of this parable that is not culturally normal. One would be showing up to your friend's house at midnight. Okay? So, like, some of you college students are like, I'm going to bed till 1 o'clock. Well, then, you're, you're different, okay? But for the rest of the world, we go to bed before midnight, okay? And so, someone comes knocking your door at midnight. It's a little scary, depending on where you live, what part of town. You're like, I'm not touching that door. Just turn, turn, turn the movie up. Turn the volume up. You know, t- put, put the white noise on. I'm not, I'm not touching that door, Right? So here's someone coming to the door, and they're knocking. So first of all, it's a little scary. Now, I had an experience with this not too long ago. Um, there was a, a, a family in our church. They were about, about, about to have a baby, and, they, and, 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 and the mom asked my wife to come help be part of the labor and, and delivery process. So um, they said, hey, we're going to call you when I go to labor. I said, great. 
So we're sleeping one night, and, um, uh, you know, it, it's literally around uh, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning. And, um, you know, I'm probably having this, like, glorious dream, just, just, just conked out, feeling great. And all of a sudden, on our bedroom windows, which our bedroom windows are behind our fence, okay? Boom, 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 boom. Someone knocking on the window. And, of course, me and Ashley are like, woo. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is that? So I'm like, I don't own a gun. So I'm like, where's the bat? Get the bat, you know? So I get my baseball bat, and I'm like, Ashley, stay here, you know? I'm like, everything you've ever learned or thought of, it's like going into motion right now, you know? And just, so I go to the front door, and I'm like, Lord, give me strength. Just can I? And I open the door and say, who's out there? Just like that. And I'm like, I'm not sure who it is. And Ray Evans, the guy in this church who's on the worship team, says, it's me, it's me, Tyler, it's Ray, it's Ray. I'm like, Ray, what are you doing? It's midnight. He said, I don't know. I was told to come get you guys. They're trying to call you, but they need to ask you to go to the hospital to go help with labor and delivery. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so go back in. Ashley, they want you to the hospital. I'm going back to bed. You know? <laughs> it's crazy. So she goes. She's a servant. Once goes, I'm like, I'm back to sleep. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm no good there. So, but I was like, wow, that is, that is um, not normal. So that's what Jesus is saying here. When you wake someone up and you scare them when they almost want to hurt you, you know, that's the point he's talking about. That's what happens to this guy. At the same time, another cultural thing was that this guy was coming to his house because he had a traveler who came to his home and he had no food for him. And most cultures around the world, if you've ever been on a mission trip, you know this. Other nations, they are super hospitable, way more than America. I know we think we're pretty good at that. But try to go to the nation where they then like empty all the food they have and make you a big meal. And it costs them everything to do it. Culturally, it is disrespectful to not offer a guest food when they come. And it says here, someone came on a long travel. They came and they need to provide them food. So someone's saying, culturally, I'm going to disrespect this person. I need to help them. So I'm going to go to my buddy over here and say, bro, give me some food. Right? That's the stage here. Now, what does the bro say who's inside the house who has all the goods? This is kind of what his response is. Don't bother me, it's midnight. Don't bother me, the door is locked and shut on purpose. Don't bother me, my kids are asleep in bed. Don't bother me, I don't want to get up. Don't bother me, I don't want to give you any of my bread. So what is Jesus trying to say here? Well, he says in verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend. Yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. You know, sometimes we think that by association, we're going to get the hookup. Um, what he's saying is, hey, just because he's your buddy, it doesn't mean you're going to actually get what you want. Um, just because you're Christian doesn't mean you're just going to get what you want. Just because you've put your faith in Jesus and now your son or daughter in the kingdom of God doesn't mean you're just going to get what you want. Just because you have a relationship, just because you have friendship, just because you're even family, it doesn't mean you're going to get what you want. And that guy on the other side of that door in this parable is not opening the door just because he knows his buddy. But why did he say he actually opened the door? Because of his impotence. Now, what does that mean? Well, I looked it up, and that word is only mentioned one time in the entire New Testament. This is the only example of this word being used. All right? Here's what it means. The lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Right? 
To have impotence means you are going against everything that is proper in society, everything that is culturally normal, and you're saying, the heck with that. I'm knocking on this door. In fact, I'm not just knocking. I'm also simultaneously ringing the doorbell. And then I'm calling my bro up to say, hey, you knock on the back door. And then I get my buddies to come over the roof and start pounding on the roof. Say, let us in. We need food. Now, Jesus says this in verse 9 and 10. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. You know, what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't say um, how many times you need to knock or how long should you be seeking or, you know, how much is too much in terms of asking. What he does say is that to the one who knocks, to the one who asks, the one who seeks, the door will be open. You know, um, sometimes we tend to think that, well, I, I'm a Christian. I know God. I can pray and talk to God. And he wants to hear my prayers. He absolutely does. But I, I prayed that one time. It didn't happen. So what does that say about God? It doesn't say anything about God. It says everything about us. Historically, God's got a really good record um, of, of answering things and doing breakthrough on things. Our record's pretty, pretty bad. Um, and so I was reading through this, and it, and it reminded me of a story of a few years ago when I was in Russia. I'm going to invite the band up as we close our time today. But um, we were in Russia about four or five years ago, and, and Antioch, as we said, have churches all over the world. And the very first overseas church plant to be planted was in Ulan-Uday, Russia. Uh, right after the Soviet, after the Soviet Union kind of collapsed and the wall came down, and so in, early, in the early '90s we planted a church. Well, out of that church, and they planted another church in Irkutsk, Russia. None of you have probably vacationed there. Uh, it's southern Siberia, very long ways away. So Jimmy Seibert, the senior pastor in Waco, invited me to go on a kind of a 20-year anniversary trip to the church. It's still happening today, and um, we went there. And <clears throat> as we're there, we're on the plane. He said, "Hey guys, I got to put you on the loop on something." He said, we've got a situation going on with one of our teams overseas. And he said, um, we just found out three days ago that our team leaders have been uh, taken by the police and are imprisoned. And this is not a country that's real friendly to Christians. And uh, they said, we, we, we're not sure what's going on. We've got to monitor the situation, but I'll, I'll be kind of distracted on this trip a little bit. I said, hey, that's great. So, you know, over the ensuing next few days, he's on phone calls, connecting back and forth, and things are starting to get worse. They were being interrogated, being beaten. And uh, things were not looking good. And um, I remember he pulled us together one day, and, and Joe you and a, f- a friend who's uh, from Scotland, he kind of travels around to different churches ministering to people. Um, and uh, Joe, we, we got together, me, Jimmy, Joe, and a few others, and we said, hey, we need to pray for God to do something. Because all the different angles we're trying aren't working. The phone calls we're making to different U.S. officials, different things, no- nothing's getting through. So we got together, and um, as we started praying, I mean, we, we weren't, Knocking, um, we, we, we were fighting. Uh, if you can imagine however you would box Satan if he was standing right here and just start pounding him in the, in the head, that's what we were doing in the spirit. We were like literally warring on behalf 
of our friends because we knew this was, this was a demonic attack on our friends, sharing the gospel, bringing people to Jesus in a nation that was seeing a lot of people come to Christ, and we knew the enemy was after them. So we started warring on their behalf, and hundreds of others were doing it at the same time. But as we're praying in this hotel room, and I can't remember a time I've prayed like this in my life probably, and we were warring, and um, someone just had kind of a, a, a prophetic act for us to do, which more or less is just saying, hey, we think God's telling us to kind of do something just like in faith. And so um, Jimmy and Joe put their hands together, and they just said, you know, we need to pretend that we're holding a key, and then we're going to unlock those prison doors for our friends because they're stuck, and it's looking bad right now. And so we prayed. They clasped their hands together. Jimmy's a, the apostolic leader in a lot of ways of this movement and founded the first church, and Joe's uh, really operates as a, as a, a pastor, but really does uh, operate just in the, in the prophetic ministry and encouraging people and, and kind of leading our people in that way. So you had this, this apostolic, uh, apostolic prophetic kind of clasping of the hands, saying, together, we're going to turn the key and believe that God's going to do something. So they just did it, and we were like, turn the key. We don't know what to do. Just turn it, you know. So we were like, God, open those doors right now. In Jesus' name, open the prison doors. Within eight hours, we got a phone call. They were being let out. Now, why did I share that with you? There were hundreds of people praying for them. We were five people. But here's what I do know about God. He says, keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. And sometimes it's one person asking, seeking, knocking. Sometimes it's ten, sometimes it's a thousand. But here's what I know about God. is There is a point in time, which I don't know when that is, when you get that breakthrough moment. And I tend to believe that there is a moment that we were with the voices of the saints contending for their release. There's maybe just, a, God was looking just for a little more of the people jumping in fully and saying, God, we really believe. And that that happened and pushed us over the line and he provided the release. They still to this day couldn't tell you how they actually got all released and it was just strange circumstances. And so I want us to stand. And as we close today, we always have prayer teams available. So prayer teams, make your way up here if you will. Life group leaders. And... I just had a real sense that um, with this message on prayer, you know, prayer is one of those things, you can talk about it, um, but unless you do it, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and um, I just felt like that there's a lot of people in this room this morning um, that you've asked God for something um, or you have really sought him out on something, you've been knocking, and then you kind of gave up somewhere along the way. You got tired or maybe just asked once. But I just felt like God gave me this phrase this morning to say this to us. You need to ask again. You need to ask again. You need to knock again. You need to seek him out again. That there's an invitation this morning, no matter whatever it is you're dealing with, it's a minor issue or a major one, that you're supposed to boldly step forward today and say, hey, will you pray with me? These guys are up here because the Bible talks about there's power in numbers, especially we pray. So the best thing you can do, if there's something that you've got, you're saying, man, I need to ask again. If God's moving on you, say, I need to knock again. I need to believe for that again. Then I want to invite you to come up, grab someone up here, wait in line. If you've got to wait in line, grab someone and say, hey, here's what's going on in my life. Will you pray with me in this thing? Because I want to see breakthrough right now. At the 9 o'clock service, we had hundreds of people getting prayer. Breakthrough was happening all over the room. But because faith was in the room. I share that story with you about Russia to give you faith. The story you're going to say, 
God does answer prayers. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just happenstance. He responds to the cries of the saints. And if you really want breakthrough, then you need to be kicking that door down and yelling at that door and punching that door. You don't have to be loud, but you have to be serious. Prayer is about you actually coming before God and saying, I mean it. I believe it. If you have the mindset that prayer doesn't do anything, it won't do anything. But if you have the mindset that actually prayer can give breakthrough where nothing else can, then God will answer the cry of your heart. So we're going to worship here, and I want to invite you. If you want to come up, come grab all these people to say, pray with me right now. You don't have to know who they are. Just pray with me. Another brother, sister in Christ that want to see your breakthrough happen this morning. So Jesus, we pray right now that you would come. You'd fill this room with faith, God. We pray you would take all the doubt out of this room, God, every one of us. If we've got doubt, if we've got pain from the past, you'd remove it and you'd say, come, step again up and say, I want to be bold. Lord, would you answer the cry of the people's hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Come on up. Just come on up. Grab somebody and say, pray with me.